Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. This is season three. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Al Heron. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, this is fantastic. So, you know, a lot of the folks on this program are, are people that I meet through the program. Uh, you and I actually connected uh, years ago. So this will be a great conversation to reconnect. In our conversations, we like to start way at the beginning, right? So you're going to be like, wait, hold on, we're going way back. But that's the anchor to the convo. So, so my first question for you, tell me a bit more about where you born and uh, what was your childhood like? Okay, well, be careful what you wish for. Okay, let's so. go. <laughs> so I am a former Air Force brat. I was born in Hawaii. My mother was from Bermuda, and uh, my dad joined the Air Force, lying about his age back in the day. But uh, being born in Hawaii, being back and forth in Bermuda, lived in Tallahassee, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, and his home, Mobile, Alabama. And ultimately, uh, he got rotated up to Fairbanks, Alaska. So I've been a lot of different places with the four high schools, uh, for example. And that taught me some adaptability, which I have come to learn and appreciate in, in later years is an asset for what it is that I'm doing now. But th- that's kind of where I was born. I grew up under some, some real old school uh, style parenting, which was accentuated by being in a military environment. And I'm actually content with that. Okay, that was uh, you know growing up in on Ielson Air Force Base, just out of Fairbanks, Alaska, the longest runway at the time, and uh, seeing those big C-17s coming flying in. My dad was a, a civil engineer; he used to have to fix them when they broke when they landed. So, you know, despite the fact that it was the '60s and the '70s, and uh, and the challenges the challenges that faced uh, African Americans, I was raised in an environment that challenged me, and and I truly appreciate it. So. Yeah. You painted a, a quick picture there. I want to dig into, you know, a child growing up on an Air Force base in Alaska. Like, like what's the day like? You know, like, I mean, are you I don't know. I, I need a, a more intense visual here. Help me paint the picture. I, I will begin to paint that picture by you know, just supposing it to the fact that uh, after being born in Hawaii and growing in, I think, for three years, uh, growing up on Hickam Air Force Base. Okay. My dad was a part of a group that supported the, um, you know, NASA space launches with monkeys and, you know, whatever the crazy stuff was. And he was doing similar stuff in Bermuda. Okay? And then transitioning my life from Mobile, where he had to go back home for a bit before getting his new orders, and then arriving in Fairbanks, Alaska in 1967. I distinctly remember the Boeing 707 landing at uh, Fairbanks International Airport and little tiny thing called uh, International Airport. But I distinctly remember uh, walking up the ramp. It was cold as you want to be. It was September. So it shouldn't have been that cold that, that cold that soon. But I remember my dad being happy to see me, grabbing me up and uh, holding me uh, with his arm, with his arm under my butt as he greeted my mom and, and the rest of the family and talked to some friends that were there. And that was the beginning of my life in Fairbanks, Alaska. The first thing that they did was uh, 
at that time, uh, they weren't doing joint bases. So Fort Wainwright was pretty much on top of Fairbanks itself. Uh, Isleson Air Force Base was about 20 miles away, but they settled uh, this new family. They gave him a, uh, a unit on the Army Base Fort Wainwright, and I was in second grade then, I think it was, and it, it was a, it, tundra. I got introduced to tundra, okay, mm. <laughs> and snow, and uh, you know, snow plows everywhere, and uh, later on uh, toward the spring. Apparently, the uh, Chena River uh, had flooded big time uh, the year before that. Actually, the flooding was apparent uh, right away. And then that all froze over as we moved into winter. And not too long after that, they sent us to uh, Isleson Air Force Base. And I lived on a street called Arctic Circle, believe it or not. Apropos. (laughs) Seriously. And it was a little cul-de-sac with three buildings, all of them townhomes. So they would have a basement, uh, middle floor, and upper floor. And of course, being that small, that was big space. Uh, but of course, it really wasn't that big. We were on the end, uh, which I liked being because we had a big yard. But I distinctly remember getting up, going out to the mouth of the cul-de-sac, waiting for the buses uh, to pick us up to take us to school. And the way they did this for, for kids, and keep in mind, it could be like 20 below zero, ice fog you know, whatever. And it was dark uh, because in the wintertime we get, we would get very few hours of light. So we'd be going to school in the dark and coming home in the dark. Uh, Mm. But you go out to the mouth of the cul-de-sac and the way they did the buses is they would put things like Donald Duck picture on it, a roadrunner picture, et cetera. And we would all be sitting there in our parkas. Yes, truly uh, in in these (laughs) big coats, jumping up and down, singing the song, you know, the bus, the bus, the B-U-S, anything to stay warm. <laughs> wow. And then my bus would pull up and it had a roadrunner sticker on it. And uh, we'd get on and go and go to class. So you survived the winters. Okay. Zero degrees was a, was a, a, a what do you call it? The heat wave. Okay. And mm. it was, it was not unusual for it to be 20 below, 30 below, 40 below. Okay. And you're just out there in a bus stop at 20 below. Yes. Wow. Okay. okay. I, think, I think it had to be 25 below for them to let make you stay home. Okay. I oh. think that's what I remember. <laughs> okay. 25 <laughs> below. Okay. Now let's pull them in. All right. That is wild. You know, it's crazy though how adaptable we are. And, you know, yep. uh, it sounds like you just had a routine with it, right? So that's uh, super interesting. Th- there's a story I wanted to hit on. At 13, your mother registered you at a horse ranch. Like, what does that mean? And uh, tell me a bit more about Where did you get that information? Did I tell something like that? (laughs) Yes. My dad was very enterprising, and he decided he was going to retire in in Alaska. I didn't know that. I found out just because it happened. But uh, he retired, moved off base to Moose Creek, so a mile and a half or so Outside of uh, Isleson Air Force Base, he um, bought some property and had a trailer on one of it and dug a big hole in another part of it and and had his home, all the parts to his home shipped to him. And he built it with his own hands. I was just amazed. Wow. And I mean, uh, he's over here fixing airplanes and things, so he could probably figure it out. But, yeah, I get that. That's still a pretty heavy, you know, investment. So that's that's impressive. So, so we lived, we lived in the trailer, okay, 
I had to deal with it freezing up every now and then, blah, blah, blah. But uh, we did that for a few years. And then about, about, the, about the time I turned 13, uh, come summer, and, you know, the realities are realities. And, and Alaska is, and I believe I'm in a position to say this because I grew up there, it can be something to behold, like, you know, up to age 18 and, and, and between the ages eight, of 18 and 26, you are truly at risk of, uh, you know, falling into substance abuse and depression and, and so on and so forth. But I never had to experience that because I eventually left when I was 17. But at 13, my mother was already uh, concerned about it. So she said, I'm going to enroll you in this, uh, this ranch program which was about 25 miles away. And she, uh, you know, I begged her not to do that. Mm. <laughs> I did not want to go up there and mess with any uh, hicks. Let's just say it that way. <laughs> All right. So I went up there and got involved in that. And I swear, it, I have to admit that the very next day, I was begging to go back. Okay? Wow. I didn't care about uh, the hicks. I love those horses and, and still do today. Okay. But she was bound and determined that I was not going to get involved in drugs and et cetera, et cetera. Not get in trouble like a couple of friends of mine. Okay. No, you're going to this program, period. Hmm. My mom was old school, so that was that was all there was to that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh I mean, it's kind of great to have, you know, some type of outlet like that. And oh, yeah. uh, I mean, that's going to be a unique experience, right? Most folks yeah. aren't going to say like, hey, uh, you know, uh, keep yourself out of trouble. We're going to go uh, take you over to this ranch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I went, so, I, went there, I went there every weekend and stayed there from Friday night to Sunday. I love Wow. It. So they had like bunk rooms or something? How'd that work? Yeah, some bunk rooms in the back. But those are primarily occupied by girls. And believe it or not, horses, horseback riding, at least where I grew up, okay, was about 80% women okay, hmm, and okay. 20% guys. And so I slept out front in, uh, what do you call it, uh, those couch beds. Okay? Mm-hmm. And it was cool. I didn't, I didn't care. And we worked our butts off. And I just loved every minute of it. Yeah, no, that's super cool. Tell me more about, you know, what, what's the inflection point for, I don't know, for you to leave home, to leave it, Alaska? What, what's the timing? What happens next? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Some of the stuff might sound like I'm making it up, but I'm not. Uh, the My parents had, had problems, okay? And I left home when I was 15, okay? My, oh, early. My dad had uh, actually bought me a car, a 1973 Roadrunner, as it turns mm. out. <laughs> like your bus. <laughs> That's right. And in the winter, I think it was uh, probably February, okay? It was 30 below out. The snow was, you know, three, four feet deep. And, of course, there's a lot of background behind what I'm about to tell you. But essentially, we were having problems. And uh, he threw a punch at me that I ducked, and uh, it destroyed the lamp behind me. Hmm. So I took that as a sign. (laughs) Okay. I uh, grabbed some stuff, grabbed the keys to that 73 Roadrunner, which I did not have a license to drive, and I left. Okay, mm. so I then drove the 20 miles uh, uh, to uh, Fairbanks and stayed with my older sister. And that was the inflection point for that. I managed to stay in school, et cetera. And, and I was working 38 hours a week. And the reason I was working 38 hours a week is at uh, market basket stores, they call it, because they didn't want to pay. Market basket stores did not want to pay benefits. Okay? And okay. they had to at, at 40 hours. So I was doing that 
and going to school at the same time. Some years have passed, okay? But it's not something that I'm complaining about. I'm telling you the story because you asked me, but it's that and other things, of course, has made me who I am. And uh, I pretty much enjoy, you know, what I've become. Right, what right. I, now that, what I can do. So Yeah, the, these steps along the journey definitely shape us. So exactly. you get to uh, University of Washington. Tell me about your, your experience there and uh, what type of communities you start building. Well, real briefly, despite making it and, and uh, despite all that working, my mom, who had already, who had separated from my dad and moved down to Seattle, I wanted me to come and be with her. And mm. so... Uh, I, I did that. I left in 11th grade. And uh, it's a good thing that I did because uh, the pressure of all that work and all that stuff was beginning to tell on my grades. But I came down to Seattle. They put me into uh, Roosevelt High School. I had to do some catching up. I took uh, some advanced calculus classes. and I took physics uh, uh, two and three at the same time, okay? all of it, which was to raise my grade point and get me to qualify for the University of Washington through the Education Opportunity Program. Uh, and I did that. And then my mom and my dad uh, re- actually reconciled. Okay? And obviously, there's a deeper story uh, behind that. But uh, they reconciled. And two days after my mom went back to Alaska with my dad, I didn't know it, but she hadn't been paying the, the monthly uh, debt on the on my little Datsun B210. So they repossessed that. Okay? No car. I woke up in my sister's house, my younger sister, not younger than me, but... Uh, between me and my old sister, I woke up her couch listening to the uh, the noises of a tow truck, and there went my Datsun B210. So mm-hmm. I bought myself a 10-speed, ended up having to attend my very first quarter at the University of Washington through the Emergency Student Loan Program. That was how I launched myself. As time went by, I, realized I started out in with a, um, a major in aeronautics, then I thought about aerospace, and then I ended up moving to physics, and I stayed there. I became the the uh, president of the National Society of Black Engineers, and after that, the after that, the Black Student Union, president of that as well. All the while working part time, and, and later on in the summer, for a black PhD candidate in physics, hmm. and that was freaking awesome. Okay, and through that uh, notoriety. I mean, my next step was to become a, a lab tech two or engineer one uh, working at the nuclear physics lab uh, at the University of Washington. And that eventually led to my getting a job at Boeing. So, yeah, obviously I'm, I had to fund my own way through school and there were trials and tribulations, but that's how I moved through school. Yeah. No, a couple of things I want to go back to. Number one, a lot of times I speak with folks and they're you know, their college major or what they do early on, it's obviously impacted by what they're exposed to. And sometimes people love it. Sometimes it's what they know. What, what was the inflection point for you to say, hey, I mean, growing up in an Air Force base, you, you knew something about planes or were exposed to them, right? What was it to say like, hey, maybe this one's not for me, uh, but this physics thing, this is it? You're, you're asking the right questions. Uh, in that townhome on Isleson Air Force Base with uh, two older sisters, my mom, and my dad, the books that, that occupied that home were romance novels. They would essentially go to one of these swap shops and buy bags of books and read the living, you know, blah, blah, blah out of them. And one day in one of these paper bags full of books, I saw one that looked a little different. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, an Isaac Asimov science fiction 
novel. I started reading that and and just absorbed it. And the next thing I know, I'm reading science fiction book after science fiction book, uh, that and playing chess. And that just got me into the frame of mind. So as time passed, I read more and more science fiction. And I think what made the difference for me, I, I was very interested in becoming, uh, going to NASA and, and, um, and possibly becoming a pilot in the Air Force before that and uh, joining the shuttle program. Okay, now that didn't ultimately that didn't happen for me, but that's why I started off with aerospace or aeronautical engineering first, and and I also looked at a minor in math because I was pretty good at math. Okay? But the reason that I switched to physics is that I had to take some physics classes to obviously to for those other degrees, and uh, physics just felt right to me. It felt like the science fiction books I was reading. Hmm. This is in retrospect as you, as you go back and analyze this stuff. Sure. But I remember going down the hallway uh, toward out of the lecture hall, headed toward the office, the physics office uh, in the physics building. And I saw two professors and I stopped them and I said, hey, look, I have a question. They said, well, what's what's going on? And I said, you know, I heard two things. Okay? One, that uh, light always moves at the speed of light. Okay? And I said, the challenge I'm having with that is that if light reflects also, then how can light be moving at the speed, always move at the speed of light, but change directions, 180 degrees. And uh, I wasn't being flippant. I wanted to know. And they mm -hmm. said, well, that's because it's uh, it's actually being absorbed and re-emitted. And boy, that just, the, the fact that, uh, and, and I'm not saying other people didn't think about that, but the fact that I noticed that and asked the right question and got an answer that that catapulted my understanding of physics, that just locked me in. Okay. So super interesting. Yeah, I love that. Okay. And then at some point during while I was uh, president of National Society of Black Engineers, we did we attended a uh, regional conference in Palo Alto. Okay. And one of the tours we took was uh, Alex Stanford at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. And that was also it for me. I became an accelerator, an experimental uh, a physicist and an accelerator physicist. And that's who I am today. Love it. Other piece I wanted to hit on uh, that you just brought up, you know, being in these societies, right? Uh, National Society of Black Engineers. Uh, I think it's uh, you know uh, short and Nesby. For that organization, you know, were there connections, friends, like 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 what's the the social intersection between you know kind of these groups versus the purely academic and professional takeaways that that you know had an impact for you? Well. There's an oddity. There's an odd thing here. Okay, I didn't really interact with a lot of people who are interested in the technology, the physics, the science that I was interested in, who looked like me before the University of Washington. Okay, ultimately in my career, you know, beginning that my, my true career, beginning with Boeing, also the same thing. Okay, did not see a lot of black faces, but in college, participating uh, in Nesby, and I still call it NSBE. And even the Black Student Union and connecting that with my everyday life, there were black folks everywhere. Whenever we went to our own uh, Seattle chapter meetings, when we went to regional conferences, national conferences, that what that made me realize is that not only could I love the science and the technology, but I could also enjoy the culture. So that has stuck with me all these years. And I did my first uh, community outreach, community advocacy, community support as a NSBE member 
at Garfield High School. Hmm. And, so, mm-hmm. and so that has stuck with me since then. It's become a part of me. And I now do this work. And, you know, I don't plan on doing this work until I'm old and gray. I already got a little bit of gray. But until I'm <laughs> dead and gray, that's how satisfied I am with right. what I'm doing. And it all began uh, with the MSBE. Yeah, no, that's great. Now, I mean, you've helped a lot of folks, both, uh, you know, in industry as well as people in your family. I'd love to hear more about, you know, in addition to your four children, you helped raise, uh, I think, a couple of your nephews. Tell me how that, you know, how does that change the the day-to-day routine when, you know, new family members show up? I acclimated to mentorship and what my nephews now describe themselves as my having helped raise them. Well, they actually say I raised them, but I, I modify that because that's out of respect for their mother and their and their father. But I acclimated to that and eventually to my own uh, kids in ways that I it took me a while to understand. But respectfully, my dad was a, a much better husband than he was a father uh, in terms of the time he spent, et cetera, et cetera. And there, was, there were issues there. I was determined to be different. Okay. And so not only did I approach it with that uh, level of passion and commitment, but it turned out it was easy for me. Okay. Not, not easy to be a parent, but easy to, to want to do those things. Okay. And so my nephews, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of what they do. And one of them is a uh, construction superintendent. Uh, the other one is a you know, technology badass. Okay. And uh, my, other, my other four, okay, they're doing well. My oldest uh, daughter is a uh, community advocate extraordinaire. The next one after that uh, majored in, in uh, biochemistry, but now she is uh, a doctor of physical therapy. Okay? So she, she got her doctorate before I'm going to get mine. Okay? It'll be another couple of years before I get mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm very, very proud of that. My oldest son is an uh, automotive engineer, very, very good at what he does. Uh, just, I, I can't get rid of the image in my head of him, like being my dad, because my dad was just off the hook when it came to, uh, repairing stuff, cars, airplanes, what have you, okay, generators, <laughs> uh, diesel motors. And then, uh, my youngest son at 13 is still a pain in my, in my rear, but he has uh, a bright future and I love it all. Okay. Yeah. So I guess I learned to wrangle kids, uh, when I was, uh, learning how to ride. And I was tasked with doing pony rides uh, for kids mm-hmm. who come, and they were a pain in my butt, but not for long. Uh, I realized that I, I could connect with them and help them understand how to ride. And, and in fact, eventually later on, I put myself, part of the way I put myself through school and made a living was by teaching uh, Western riding, hunt seat riding, et cetera. And I was able to communicate with people and communicate with, um, with kids. And I took that with me into uh, working with uh, African-American students and helping them understand science and science, math, and engineering. So uh, I'm blessed to to enjoy what I do. Yeah, no, uh, just some great, fantastic proof points that, you know, of where you've made that impact. One of the things you were, you called out, you were talking about your kids that I want to come back for you. You said, hey, you're, you know, one of your daughters, focused on one thing in school, and then she transitioned to something else professionally. A lot of us do that. I would say many times it's more more the case than not. Help me understand what a person who uh, you know majors in physics does when they go 
to work at a place like Boeing. And, you know, again, many folks hear those words and they're like, oh, physics. Yeah. Boeing. Yeah. I know those words. Like, break it down. Give us the the short version of like, what's the actual work? So the actual work uh, ended up being much like the work that I did at the at the University of Washington, working for the uh, physics, working in the physics department for that uh, Ph.D. uh, candidate. And later on at the nuclear physics lab, working for a a professor and helping him with his uh, with his very interesting experiment got me an old boys uh, network connection to uh, to Boeing through that professor's uh, friend who was already at Boeing. And uh, they brought me into Boeing. I did my orientation. I showed up the, at the Boeing Radiation Effects Laboratory in South Park. We walked into the facility uh, together, me and my new boss, Dr. Tom Hayward. And we, we went into the, the uh, front area, the reception area. They outfitted us with a radiation badge, told us all, all the things to watch out for. Then we walked through the um, coded door because uh, you couldn't go back there without uh, authorization. And uh, we, we walked around, walked down the stairs. I said, well, I wonder where this lab is <laughs> that I'm going to work in. And we kept walking back uh, deep into the, the building. Then we came to this door and I said, this must be it. He opened the door. It was actually a door to the outside behind the building. And then we walked walked past uh, this uh, aircraft wing, which was what had all kinds of electronics connected to it that they were testing. And there was a trailer next to that that was kind of the control center for that. I thought that was going to be the place I was going to be. But we kept okay. going back back to the small shack, <laughs> which they called which they called the rat shack. OK, OK. <laughs> we go in the front door of this rat shack and in there is um, drill presses and, and various uh, machine tools where people will come out and get some work done or shape a part, whatever the case may be. I thought. How am I supposed to be in this place? And then we took a right through this door and this partitioned off space, and it was stacked with crates and dust and, and yes, a couple of dead rats, etc. He said, okay, build me a lab. <laughs> so so I, I went after that like a starving man. I just loved it. Okay, so and, uh, the, it had a um, garage door on one end, which I opened up got all the crates out and then pulled out a klystron and, and a couple of uh, high voltage power supplies. And, and I swept the place out and I organized it and, and I built a platform for the uh, klystron, which was used to uh, generate uh, radio frequencies that would then be put into a resonant cavity representing a radio frequency quadrupole, which is a, a uh, type of uh, particle accelerator. And uh, that meant um, building the cooling system for it. That meant building the support system running, you know, 480, three-phase power, everything. Okay? I ate it up. And uh, it. we did some, some of the first cryogenic particle accelerator research uh, using beryllium because we thought that that had the, the proper uh, conductive uh, characteristics. And, and that was just the beginning. Okay, so wow. I, I could go on for quite some time. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. I mean, for the, the people in your life, did they understand or have, you know, kind of, you know, the, the gravity of the work that you're doing? Or is it like, I don't know, it all sounds like sci-fi to me. I would say that they didn't understand, but they appreciated it. I have uh, people today, some some people I barely know, some people I know very well, some family members who, who call me Dr. Heron and I don't have a PhD. Okay. I have to occasionally remind them, I say, I appreciate that, but remember, it's just a master's degree. <laughs> 
And that's because uh, I guess I talk well enough about it without trying to, to be highfalutin that they get it. They get that I uh, that I understand it, that I enjoy it, that it is unique work. And they show that appreciation. Of course, I try and show that appreciation right back. Okay? But, uh, yeah, there's not a lot of understanding of it. Okay? But, you know, they, they appreciate uh, what I do and, and they appreciate the fact that it's something that I truly enjoy. So. Right. Before we move on to some of the, the work you've uh, been doing around community advocacy and other things, for someone who is looking, you know, younger person who's looking at how they might spend their time and they're, they're thinking about, you know, education, their college majors and those types of things. What are some of the highlights or things to consider for someone who's like, all right, well, why should I consider physics versus, you know, in any other thing? Like, like what's the pitch to kind of say, hey, here's here's why you might want to consider this as uh, as a career. Well, I'm gonna my bias is gonna show here. Okay, because, let's go. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like one of the things I do right now, it, I help small businesses, entrepreneurs, startups, uh, and that ranges from you know pure science to math to other nonprofits. One of the uh, companies that I'm working with right now, the guy founded a nonprofit that did a lot of good and created uh, Saturday Math Academy. And uh, he wanted to build a for-profit company. So he brought me on board to help him negotiate the transition from that nonprofit to a for-profit. And we have these these interesting battles, okay, about what's better, you know, science, I guess, uh, or math. I said, well, it's actually physics. And then we argue about that. And I said, physics teaches you about how the world works. Okay. So, you know, that makes that, you know, we, we need math to help us do that. But physics is about the world. Okay. So I'm biased in that, in that regard. And what I tell some of the students that I, that uh, I wrangle or that intern with me is that uh, if, you, if you want a basic training about science, period, start with physics. Okay. It will take you everywhere you want to go with any of the rest of STEM. Okay. Hence my bias. <laughs> so that's what I tell them. And then when I launched the STEM Tech Foundation, and I know we'll come back to more of this, but when I launched STEM Tech Foundation, the very first program we did was out of Lakewood, uh, uh, Washington. And uh, we visited uh, nuclear physics lab. I used my connections there in order to, to uh, well, actually we, we visited uh, Aerojet first and then later on the, uh, the uh, uh, nuclear physics lab. And I showed them, how physics allowed these people at Aerojet to do the things they did with um, launch vehicles. And uh, we, we looked at the telemetry stations and et cetera. From what everything I could tell and from the um, comments I got after the program, they loved it. And in fact, the, uh, the people at Aerojet loved it and asked us to come back. I mean, before we even left, hmm. they asked us to come back. And I said, this is the kind of thing that you can do. You can do this fun science. You can relate to people okay, and just really look at, be able to see how you can change the world. So, yes, I can get quite loquacious about it, I admit, but uh, I mean it. I believe it. And I feel that. Yeah, no, that's great. One of the things I wanted to to hit on is the... The work that happens, you know, uh, or maybe it's the motivation first. Let's start there for you to say, hey, I want to go mentor this person. I want to go volunteer. Where does that motivation come from for you? Let's start there. Well, 
That is a really good question. Where does it come from? I know it's there. It's there big time. I guess I like the impact that I have on students like that because it, it feels like the impact I have on my own kids. If, I, if it comes down to it, that would be it. And like I said, when I when I would um, wrangle kids during horseback riding and, and teach them about horseback riding, that felt right. It felt good, and that's what I feel when I'm working with the you know students. Uh, this is just one of the programs that we did uh, at um, at a high school in Federal Way. And a couple of years after I did that, I um, got a call from a gentleman and. He said, Mr. Heron, you know, I was uh, part of your, your program, the STEM program that you did about a year and a half ago. And I was wondering, I've got this idea about uh, doing a, a drone tours of uh, colleges. Uh, could you help me with that? And to be honest with you, I was kind of busy. Didn't have a whole lot of time with him for him. But I said, look, just call me back. He kept calling me back. <laughs> so, right. So ultimately, I said, look, you want to, I think you should intern with me. And so we did. Anyway, to shorten the story, he interned with me through his bachelor's degree at um, University, was he, I believe it was University of Puget Sound. And now he is in France in a master's degree robotics program. And we are, we are close. I incubated and spun out a company of his that uh, eventually I became a, a part owner of and at his request, and he is going gangbusters. And that's just one example. I love that beyond measure <laughs> yeah. to be able to have that kind of impact because I can point to some people in my life that had almost the same impact on me. Yeah. yeah. Great to play it forward. Yeah. Uh, the other piece on that that I was going to ask a bit more about, you know, you do both I mean, you have uh, the technical bra- the background, right? So you can um, help people as they're on that path. But also, you know, the business consulting and entrepreneurship. Where do you find, you know, obviously this is going to be unique to the population that you're helping, but where do you find people need more support and mentorship? Is it like how to run the business, how to stay motivated for their their business? Is it, you know, the technical readiness? Like like where are the areas where you feel kind of helping people move forward the, the you know, most specifically? So as I became a serial board member, a strong community advocate and supporter, and a serial entrepreneur, as I realized that that's who I was, okay, the way my mind works is it's a lot about symmetry. So I started trying to figure out how these things would come together because every now and then somebody would say, man, you're doing a lot. And then ultimately I was able to tell them, well, actually, I tend to do things that can relate to one another. And that way, if they're connected, then I can do two or three things and it looks like I'm doing six or seven things. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so therefore that allowed me to formulate a plan. I said, all right, I'm pretty good at a number of things. Okay? Technology, sure. I'm an entrepreneur. I've formed businesses. I've had some success. I've been, I've been on a millionaire run twice in my life. I intended, uh, you know, uh, and I think I am on, on another one of those runs right now. So, one of the things I can do that connects both my desire to be a community advocate and supporter and my entrepreneur instincts is uh, I create a consulting company where I can help them do, do things and also be in a position to uh, capture opportunities to uh, pick up some equity for those uh, with those clients that I have a particular strong belief in the success of their company, in addition to just consulting and getting paid. So I formed 
Impact Variant Consulting Group, which is a business management, business development consulting group. I formed StemTech LLC, which is not the same as StemTech Foundation. That was a technology consulting uh, company specifically connected to STEM curriculum uh, development and program development, which I would then lease over to StemTech Foundation, the, the nonprofit, and they would deliver those programs. And thus far, individually and collaboration with uh, a few key partners, Stemtech Foundation has had the, the the blessing to have impacted probably about uh, 12,000 kids uh, since uh, 2013. So I feel really good about that. But in order to also satisfy my desire to do to continue to do breakout technology, which I was able to do for quite some time uh, at Boeing and later on getting hired away from Boeing to a, a, a particle accelerator uh, development company in uh, Northern California and the work I was doing with National Labs, in order to preserve that that fun, okay, uh, that pleasure, mm-hmm. I needed to have my own startup company. So I created this company called Ozea Tech. And Ozea, O-Z-A-Y-A, is a derivative of the Hebrew word Hosea, which represents uh, help or salvation. So Ozea Tech is like helpful technology, okay, salvation oh, I like technology. It. Yeah, yeah, so I thought, that, I thought that was cool. And that is focused a lot, yes, around drone tech. So love the drone work, but not just the drones themselves, what can be done with those drones. And that's where my, my innovative and creative energies can flow and, and have, in fact, has created some fairly unique things that, which we currently think that we're going to get funded. So we'll see. But that put me in a position to directly impact people who wanted consulting on business management, people who wanted consulting on management, technology development and community members who simply needed uh, advice or support from a nonprofit who's just there to help them. So I get to do all of that. So I guess the answer to your question, what do I find is needed most? Really, it's across the board, okay? Mm -hmm. I would say there's probably more people trying to get help from a nonprofit like StemTech Foundation than than there are small startups that, really have an opportunity, especially when I'm focusing on companies that are founded and or and or run by people of color, which I would love for that to, well, which I expect is changing. But uh, access, actual access to capital, actual access to resources. Right now, my nonprofit is set up in the best position to provide help for people who are doing that. And that ultimately does spill out into uh, word of mouth and uh, opportunities for both my consulting companies to consult and, and make some dollars. So we're building, I call it the Aisha group of companies because mm-hmm. Aisha Corporation is a company I formed in 1996 in order to distribute a marinade sauce called Chaka's Um Sauce. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And we did pretty well. We did like of fifty thousand dollars in gross revenue in nineteen ninety five and in ninety six we did four hundred thousand and by the time nineteen ninety seven hit we were on a run toward about a million and a half uh, but then in February there was a huge a snowstorm and it collapsed the roof on on our warehouse mm. and i had I had to get out of that business unfortunately but i kept the, i had i kept the company i kept the company name but it is now kind of my stealth company. It owns all of my all of any intellectual property that I have, and it's kind of in the background. While my business management and business development consulting company seeks out customers and, and tries to help 
and tries to get paid at the same time. Same thing with technology. And then both of those are leveraged as support resources for STEM Tech Foundation, uh, the nonprofit. So that's my little design in order to keep things flowing. And and boy, can I run my mouth when when I, when I need when I. Well, no, it's great. It's great. It's fantastic. I mean, what, one of the things that I really like about, you know, kind of the theme and, and everyone I speak with, there is uh, whether it's intentional or not, there is a theme. And, uh, you know, yours is, is pretty upfront. Right. So uh, what I find interesting about that last piece is not only are you great at wrangling, you know, students and uh, children and, and, you know, humans, but also, you know, all of these projects and programs and, you know, you talked about your serial board work, like there's a lot of committees and, and uh, commitments. And so keeping all of that in order is a big deal. Before we wrap up, I wanted to get to STEMTAC Foundation specifically and uh, talk. Well, one, tell me more about the charter and kind of what's the focus of the organization. OK, so, uh, yeah, it's a perfect question, because I, I spent the last uh, few years figuring out what. Uh, STEM Tech Foundation was going to be when I grew up. Okay, sure we were doing some good stuff and and uh, having an impact, you know, in Tacoma and Federal Way, uh, Seattle Public Schools, Tequila and Kent, and also Lake Washington, also East Side Schools, Bellevue and Lake Washington School District, and and I love that. Uh, but what was going to be sustained? Okay, what was going to be the the legacy of STEM Tech Foundation? And I realized that I wasn't trying to be something like the Technology Access Foundation. Okay? I, I prefer to go in and problem solve something okay? and then go find something else and problem solve that. To have somebody recommend me to really help them resolve an issue. And then they call on me and I, and I, I sit down and have a, a frank discussion with them about their challenge and I help them solve that. I love that. Okay? Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I said, huh, I think what's going on is that uh, STEM tech is a kind of a, a boutique solution uh, provider okay? and a program uh, developer and designer okay? where, where we can then go in and, and help a, a nonprofit not only get started, but you give them a little bit of a shove in the direction of the kind of program that will work well for them. Okay? And when I began to realize that, it started to settle in, it started to lock in. Okay? Mm-hmm, right. Uh, and so that's what I've been doing. I now have about five. StemTech now is working. Is my consulting companies have about five or six nonprofits. I mean, other other companies as well, but five or six nonprofits that we're working with. And I immediately partner those those nonprofits with my nonprofit, and that kind of locks it in from both directions. Right. And it seems it seems to be working well. We we have a couple of designer programs. Not that we're trying, and, and, and those designer programs aren't intended necessarily to be a massive success on their own, but they, they are able, I'm able to inject those programs or elements of those programs into a programmatic scope of these other nonprofits. So we have the National Youth uh, uh, Laboratory, uh, NYL, uh, National Youth Laboratory Initiative, and that's made up of uh, assets, uh, advanced student entrepreneur technology teams. In fact, that that intern that I told you about, uh, who ended up in France in a master's program, was one of the members of of one of these assets, mm-hmm. and those assets are like made up of three, four, five, six students, plus a, uh, a corporate advisor, academic advisor, etc. And they can do everything from studying something philosophically, conceptually, to actually creating a company. Okay, and 
and doing something with that company. Uh, so that's just one example. I have also got the uh, TICI, the Technology and Innovation uh, Center Initiative, and that's designed to inject the uh, capacity into uh, small companies and uh, nonprofits so that they can get their act together when it comes to IT, when it comes to data acquisition, analysis, and reporting. So these things allow me to help. Yeah, and I like to help. That's <laughs> I fantastic. I want to make a living too, but I do like to help. So. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Well, one of the things I believe the organization is doing is exploring true engagement around remote learning, which is yeah. definitely needed in the midst of this pandemic and, and beyond. Tell me a bit more about what type of work is being done there. Yeah, I, I had to come up with a strategy because, uh, you know, I know everybody is working hard and I appreciate that and I'm working hard with them. But I had to come up with a, with a strategy which I felt was kind of unique for me and, and where I could put a lot of energy into it and, and have it produce a result. So I believe in collaboration. When I say collaboration is key, it's not it's not just a cliche. It's, it's, it's for real. Okay. So I said, who, who can I work, work with a lot of people, but who can I work with like really tightly? Okay? And I realized that uh, engageable designs, okay, which is uh, the, home, the new home of Saturday Math Academy, well, I'm actually playing a role as their, as their business manager. And so I had the ability to work with them. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, then the, the breakfast group, okay? I'm on their advisory board. And then the Greer Institute, which is a national nonprofit, and I'm on their board of directors, and I'm also a research fellow with them. Okay, and then Mars Early Learning Academy. Okay? They're one of my one of my clients. But when I put those together, that allows us to hit things uh, K through 20. Okay, and that's the new catchphrase K20. Okay, and then go after methods uh, and, and ways to truly engage students who are experiencing virtual fatigue. Okay. So we created something, we came up with a concept of uh, something which we call engagement, engagement specialists. And those engagement specialists are training okay, to go to um, family households and to do everything as a part of a program that these, these parents would be involved in with us, to do everything from help them, help them uh, fix their internet issue to getting online effectively and ultimately you know, getting, maybe getting a student out of the house and, and, and down the block to a playground for, for a half a minute. <laughs> mm-hmm. But achieving some actual engagement so that these students can feel like they're, can be safe, but also feel like they're part of something that's taking them somewhere. Okay? Yeah, so, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, so I had to come up with a name for it. I love acronyms too much, I think. So I, I call it the Stemtech Foundation Strategic Collaboration Partners, Partnership Group. So the SCP group. Yeah. And so we are working together to provide that K through 20 support and also to go after funding together so that we can do more of it. Fantastic. Yeah. As we're wrapping up, you know, I always want to hear some advice, right? I mean, you've given us plenty and uh, a lot of nuggets here uh, along the way. But, you know, what, what's what's advice you would give to people who are maybe on a similar journey, but they're few steps uh, um, you know behind they're kind of looking forward trying to figure out how to navigate things what you know what would you share with folks I would say uh, and some of this people already get but it, it bears uh, repeating okay partnerships are of true value chase them okay build your program your purpose your concept and then chase the money that fits that not the other way around okay? mm-hmm. 
And when it comes to having to make the choice between doing it yourself and paying somebody to do it, do a true analysis of what's going to net you the best results. If it turns out that paying somebody to do it, somebody has the experience to do it or has the connections to do it, is going to be better for you, you just don't have the money, then find your pain point <laughs> and go ahead and go after the money you need to pay that person because bootstrapping is is an important ability. Being able to bootstrap, that's important. But you could be bootstrapping for a year and instead spend a couple of months finding the money to get the right kind of consulting and end up uh, being up and going in just a few months after that. It really makes, I've found that it really makes a difference if you allow yourself to to think about that, so. Excellent. Well, Al, I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing your story. That was fantastic to listen to. All right, well, I appreciate this, having this opportunity. Appreciate uh, being able to talk with you again, uh, LaShawn. And I hope and assume that we are going to connect after this. Yeah, definitely. Uh, tell our listeners where they can find you or anything uh, around STEM Tech online. Okay, very cool. So www.stemtechfoundation.org. Okay? And that's S-T-E-M-T-A-C, foundation.org. And then in the last four months, we have uh, put together a visibility campaign, social media campaign. So we're on LinkedIn. Okay, Just have to search for us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, etc. And then we talk about our partners okay, you know, very loudly, uh, Engageable Designs, The Breakfast Group, uh, The Greer Institute, and the Mars Early Learning Academy. So we'll be happy for you to come to our website, uh, send us a message, uh, tell us what you're doing, ask for help, uh, offer help. Collaboration is key. Excellent. And we'll make sure those links are in the show notes. And right. thanks to everyone who joined us today to listen to our conversation with Al. Hope you have enjoyed your time as well. Please leave a great review wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.